thank you for those of you who've been praying for my uh, recovery from a knee replacement surgery. I appreciate it. I'm making, I think, slow and steady progress. Um, I'm not sleeping well at all, and if you are praying for me, if you would adjust your prayers for that, I just just can't seem to be back in the regular swing of things sleep-wise. Um, don't know why, but uh, God willing, I'll get there. Um, I've been, uh, last Sunday, particularly this Sunday, I'm thinking and preaching what I would call orienting sermons that would, I think, help a church or an individual Christian orient their lives. Um, I think it's uh, rather perplexing when when a person comes to Christ and you ask the question, um, what should I do? Or if a person's been a Christian a while to 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 uh, gauge the, uh, how am I doing? And um, you need some kind of framework uh, with which to do that. And so last Sunday and this Sunday are a bit in that direction. So before we read the text, I want to kind of ease into this topic today, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, by saying that it seems to me... Uh, I became a Christian in 1970. I was in seminary in 72. I got out of seminary in 76 and was ordained uh, then and became pastor of a small church in Madison, Mississippi, just north of Jackson. It seems to me that the greatest challenge facing the church in every generation is this. First, to discover what the gospel is. You might say, don't we know what the gospel is? Well, yes, kind of. But I think every generation has to uh, make uh, the gospel their own, so we need to discover the gospel. We need to digest the gospel. We need to work it through our lives. What does the gospel tell me to do? How does it teach me to feel? And then thirdly, we need to disseminate the gospel, spread the gospel... Uh, discover, digest, disseminate the gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, I've said that in one sense I think that's clear, but in another sense I think that's not quite clear. I'll tell you a story from years ago. Uh, one of the assistant pastors at the church, uh, actually one of the first assistants I had, um, I asked him, a guy that was well-educated, a guy know, uh, still know, knew, keep up with, I said to him one day, what does this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, mean to you? Uh, Matthew uses it here in verse 35. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 23. He uses it in chapter 24, verse 14. And so I said to him, what does it mean to you? And he looked at me with that old deer-in-the-headlights expression as if to say, nothing. (laughs) I've never thought of the gospel that way. Is the kingdom the good news? It didn't connect with him, and maybe it doesn't connect with you either. So I want you to think of the gospel as a diamond. Okay, a diamond. Most diamonds you've ever looked at had various facets. It was cut with facets on it. And when you pick a diamond up, I've never seen anybody pick up a diamond and look at it from one perspective and then just put it down, right? 
When people pick up a diamond, they look at it, and they turn it, and they turn it, and they look at it here, and they're, they're looking at clarity, right? They're looking at clarity. They're looking at color. They're looking at brilliance. You never look at a diamond from just one perspective. And think of the gospel as a diamond with various facets. And I'm going to suggest that we need to not look at just one of those facets. And perhaps today I'm showing you a facet that you've never quite thought about. The gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father, help us. Help us to understand, clear our minds, focus our minds, change our minds, stretch our minds and our hearts to embrace teaching that some of us have seen before and some have never seen before and use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 18 with some passages that may not seem like they have much to do uh, with what I'm saying today, but stick with me, we'll get there, okay? So, at uh, Matthew 9, at verse 18, while he, that is Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, that is the mourners, he came and saw the mourners, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And when he has said, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. 
The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will not fade. It will be fulfilled in every way. Uh, Our text uh, is primarily found down here in verse uh, 35, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I want to begin with two stories that have something in common, and I want you to see if you can figure out what it is that they have in common. And I will admit this is really uh, uh, unfair and it's not very easy, but some of you might figure it out. Okay, here are the two stories. One, a child is asked, what is Christmas all about? And the child responds, gifts. Here's the second story. In early April 1945, about a month before the end of the war in Europe, two officers at the Allied High Command in Europe are discussing the American prisoners of war still in prisons in Germany. And one asked the other, what is our goal in regard to these prisoners? And the other one says, to set them free. So what do these two disparate, very disparate stories have in common? Well, it seems to me that both of them, in both of them, there is a part that's true that's taken for the whole of the truth. And that's short-sighted at best and dangerous, perhaps. Let me explain. So you ask the child, what is Christmas all about? And he says, gifts. Well, that's true. For most of us, gifts are a part of our Christmas. But it's not the only thing. It's not the main thing. Of course, Jesus is the main thing. But it's true that gifts are a part, maybe a small part, maybe a big part, but not the main part. And think of the prisoners. It is a vital thing to set them free, but it's not the only thing. They need to be freed and fed and cleansed and clothed and receive medical attention so that they can be brought home to family and friends and culture and values to the life that they had lived formerly. The good news for the prisoners was not just that I'm free, but it's I'm going home, right? Yeah. I'm concerned that some of us may be taking a significant part of the gospel as all of the gospel. If you take the forgiveness of your sins, great as that is, as the whole of your salvation, you leave out something very significant. If you take a restored relationship with Jesus Christ as the entirety of your salvation, then you leave out something that must be included. It is not that you're not saved, of course, I'm not saying that. It's that you don't fully grasp all that has been done for you in your great salvation. In the Bible's picture of our salvation, it's far more expansive than just having our sins forgiven, as great as that is. Praise God for that, but it's more than that. The thing that is often omitted in our thinking is that the king is the kingdom of God. And living as a citizen of that kingdom, with Jesus as our benevolent king, now and on in to eternity future. To leave out the kingdom of God as a significant part of the good news is to leave out submission to the king, perhaps, and service to him. And many do that. But Jesus did not live it out. He came and announced the gospel of the kingdom. He said in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. And so this text will show us that Jesus announced the kingdom in words and he announced the kingdom in works. Words and works. We'll come back to that in my last main point. The kingdom, this kingdom, and seeing life today as being lived in it is what makes marriage and family and work and play and all other aspects of life the most meaningful and significant. It puts our present lives in proper perspective. It orients us. It gives us a framework with which to evaluate where we are and who we are and how we're doing. The problem for some of us is in getting our lives oriented is we fail to see that we're living in a kingdom under a benevolent, very benevolent king. The king is the good news. And the kingdom is the good news, as we shall see. Forgiveness of sins is vital, but it's really only a part of our great salvation. Restored personal relationship is vital, but it's more, really, than that. The good news is forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ so that I can willingly be subject to the King of kings and Lord of lords, as a citizen of the eternal kingdom, as a beloved child in His benevolent kingdom. The King is my Father. And that's really, really good news. Now, I want to say a couple other things, and then I want to dig into uh, the text a little bit more. Uh, I'm assuming that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same thing. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to show you that or demonstrate that from the text. Uh, the, the scriptures, it seemed to me, use interchangeably kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. That's not as big an issue as it was in evangelicalism 50, as it was 50 years ago. There were people that thought the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven were very distinct and different. And perhaps some of you are like that still. Uh, uh, and, and if you want to talk about that, we can. But I'm just going to make that assumption um, and, and secondly, I want to just say to you that there's a lot of repetition in this sermon, and I know that. Uh, it helps me to get it, and I hope it'll help you to get it as well. Okay. Uh, what is, in my first main point, what is the kingdom of God? Now, that is a very debated question, and I'm going to give you a true but very wimpy answer that avoids a lot of the controversies, okay? Uh, and I'm just going to say that the kingdom of God is the rule of God in the realm of God. Okay, the rule of God in the realm of God, or God's rule in God's realm. It avoids some of the controversies, and I, I'm not, although I think those are interesting, they're not important for the purposes of this text. What is the kingdom of God? Well, um, it, it's God's rule in God's realm. And so, if you want to think about uh, the, the Old Testament foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and you've got God in his garden with his people and ruling them. You, you think of the promises to Abraham, the five Ps I've mentioned, you know, presence, people, place, protection, provision. Uh, those same Ps, uh, place, people, protection, uh, provision, and God's presence are mentioned to Joshua when he's called to make the conquest uh, in into Canaan. Um, and And it was prophecies about the kingdom that grounded the Jewish expectation in regard to the coming Messiah. For instance, and I hope this will just encapsulate it, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, when the disciples are with Jesus just before he ascends into heaven, they ask him this, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and he said in so many words, not right now, guys, but later. Okay, not right now, but later. But the expectation grounded in the Old Testament prophecies, grounded in the conquest of Canaan and all the other things I've mentioned was that there would be a kingdom and the people of God would inherit it. And so they were looking forward to a kingdom. The coming defeat of Israel's enemies by the Messiah and the restoration of Israel to the land and to their God and a new, lasting, eternal kingdom with an eternal king. So that's, there's a lot of Old Testament background, and I think that verse in Acts 1, verse 6 shows it. But then in the New Testament, what did Jesus do in regard to the kingdom? Well, he, he came as the king and he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Remember, very early in John's gospel, when Nathaniel is converted, Jesus says, I saw you when you're sitting under the fig tree. And, and how did uh, Nathaniel respond? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, that shows you Nathaniel's expectation. And Jesus is the coming king. And, and you look at the ministry of Jesus and he defeated, as a king, a warrior king, he defeated the enemies of God. Not fully and finally, but certainly in principle and in one sense, really. He, he defeated our spiritual enemies. He defeated the devil. Listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus is portrayed in the gospel as having destroyed the devil, the one who had the power of death, and he destroyed sin. Sin will have, no longer have dominion over you. Sin will not master you. Sin, sin will not be a king over you because you're not under law, but you're now under the grace of God. And, and he destroyed death. Behold, Matthew 27, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What's the point of that passage? Well, it's to show reaccess to the temple, yes, but to show that he, in theory, in principle, in reality, has destroyed death, and that God's people can expect life. The future, final fulfillment of the kingdom of God is also pictured in the New Testament, primarily, or it seems to me most clearly, in the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, where you have God's people in God's place with God's presence and God's protection and God's provision. God is a God of vision. He has a vision for His people. His vision is that His people will be with Him in His kingdom forever and ever, protected by Him. And so the kingdom of God in the past has come in the coming of Jesus by His appearance and by His ministry, His life, death, resurrection, ascension. 
presently, the kingdom of God is coming day by day by the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering the church and God's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the kingdom of God will come in its fullness and finality in the future when Jesus comes again. And all those are good news. So, what is the kingdom of God? It's those things and really much more. What is the gospel of the kingdom? And I'm admitted to you, there's a lot of repetition in my first two points in this sermon. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, it's the good news that Jesus, the Messiah King, has come. That's the good news, right? When the wise men showed up, they said what? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Because we have come to worship him. Yeah. That was good news. That was really good news. That's why the angels sang. That's why the shepherds were so overwhelmed. Born a child and yet a king. That's why Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Yippee! The king is here. That's why the crowds worshipped him on Palm Sunday. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When a prince is born, the kingdom rejoices. When a king is coronated, there's a great celebration. I had a seminary professor uh, when I was in seminary in the early 70s who had studied in Amsterdam at the Free University um, in the 60s, I think. And he said he happened to be in Amsterdam on the day that a, a prince was born to the House of Orange in the Netherlands. And, and this prince, of course, would be the future king. And he was with a Dutch friend, and the Dutch friend said, we've got to get out of town. And, and, and my professor said, what? Why do we have to get out of town? He said, this place is going to go crazy. A king has been born. And the patient people would just go crazy with celebration and rejoicing. That's what happened. That's what happened. So the good news of the gospel, the kingdom, is that the king has come. And secondly, the good news is that the kingdom has come as a present reality. As a present reality. And you, say, you sit there and look at me and you say, well, hey, don't I live in the United States of America? Aren't we in Newburgh? I mean, I, I, I don't... Um, my, my passport says United States citizen, most of us. Um, The kingdom of God is a present reality? Jesus said, If by the Spirit I bind the strong man, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, in that verse and and several others, Jesus is saying, Look, the kingdom, guys, the kingdom is here. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. I know that, and there's a lot of issues surrounding that. Uh, but 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 the truth is, the king brought the kingdom. The king inaugurated the kingdom. There's a real tendency among believers, if you said, when does the kingdom of God start? You'd say, well, it's either when I die and go to heaven or when Jesus comes back. Yeah, 
but that's not exactly accurate. I would say the kingdom of God for you as you experience it will change dramatically when Jesus comes back or when you, when you die and go to be with him if you're a believer. But the kingdom is here as a present reality. He inaugurated the kingdom when he came the first time. We become citizens of the kingdom. Philippians says that. Your citizenship is in heaven. You see, there's a sense in which my passport is a fraud. Or better said, incomplete, right? Because my citizenship's in heaven. If you're a believer, your citizenship is in heaven. What well, says, I'm a citizen of the United States. Yeah, but that ain't the big deal, right? I mean, let's think of a thousand years from now, well, I care very much that I had a U.S. passport. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's going to amount to a hill of beans, right? But my citizenship being in heaven, and that's a big deal. That'll still be relevant. Still be very very relevant. The Bible teaches that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he came the first time, that we become citizens of the kingdom of God when we repent and believe, when we turn and trust, when we commit to obeying and serving the king. When I offer you Jesus by faith, I offer you relationship with the king. I offer you citizenship in the kingdom. And that's good news. And so I ask you today, if you've never renounced your citizenship in the world to embrace the citizenship of the kingdom of God, will you do that today? You know, renouncing citizenship and obtaining citizenship are really, um, I'm talking about illustratively, if you wanted to renounce your U.S. citizenship, if you wanted to get citizenship in another nation, that depends, the ability to do that depends on the nation that you want to renounce the citizenship of and the nation that you want to become a citizen of. For instance, I don't think I could become a a citizen of of Switzerland. I don't think I have enough money or whatever. I'm sure I couldn't become a citizen of Israel because as far as I know, I have no Jewish uh, heritage. Um, So there are some places it's very difficult to become a citizen of. And there's some places it's hard to renounce your citizenship, at least, and get out with your assets. I'm not exactly sure about that one. But here's the deal. If you try to renounce the citizenship of the world, the world's going to try to hold on to you. The world's going to try to keep you. The the world doesn't want to let go of you. But Jesus will give you citizenship in heaven for free. (laughs) If you come and turn and trust and repent and believe the gospel, he will welcome you warmly into his kingdom as his child. So I'm trying to answer the question, what is the gospel of the kingdom? It is that Jesus is the king and that he inaugurated the kingdom. And it's a good news. Thirdly, the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that life and relationships with this king and kingdom are the present possession of the believer. It is your present possession, uh, not a future possession. Life in in the kingdom and the quality of life there depends on the king and my relationship to him and responsiveness to him. And what I mean by that is just this. Suppose suppose I knew the king, the queen of England, who I guess we need to be praying for. She's diagnosed with COVID, they tell us. And, And I went to that nation and I had relationship with her, and I might have a meal with her. Well, we're going to have a meal with the king here in a few minutes, right? Because if you have a tight relationship with the king, there are all sorts of benefits that go with that. 
people try to emulate their king, their values, the rules. See, Jesus is a good king, a benevolent king. You can trust him and entrust him with anything. And, and so it means that salvation and eternal life have already begun. The benefits of being a child of the kingdom are peace. Acts 10, verse 36. Peter was preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Being in the, in the peace of God, the shalom of God. Being in the, in the kingdom of God also not only has benefits, but it has obligations, right? I've got to live like a child of that kingdom. I've got to strive to live an eternal type of life now. Uh, to use a wonderful phrase that I got from, uh, and a concept I got from Ed Clowney, who used to be president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he said, what is our role today as citizens of the kingdom of God? And he said, we're supposed to colonize heaven. I love the image. We're supposed to colonize heaven. What do we mean by that? And, and, and take all the thoughts of the old colonialism out. Okay, just what is the point here? The point here is if you lived in a colony, a British colony in India uh, 150 years ago, right? What would that colony be like? Well, in that colony, you would have what? You would dress like they do in England. You'd speak like they did in England. You would have the values. You would have the food, the drink, and everything. It would be like a little bit of England right there in, in, in India, right? A colony is just like a little bit of the home country established in a different place. That's what we ought to be. That's what a church ought to be. A church ought to be a colony of heaven. I call on you, CVP, to be a colony of heaven. I call on every one of you as believers in Jesus Christ, wherever you are, whatever Christian church, whatever Christian group you're a part of, what is your task and goal? Well, it's to colonize heaven, to reveal heaven to people by the way you live and think and act and treat one another. Thirdly, what are the benefits of thinking this way? What are the benefits of thinking in terms of the kingdom of God? Well, it it impels us to think in terms of ministry in words and ministry in deeds. The kingdom of God is where the peace or shalom of God is experienced. And since the shalom of God is the fullness of blessing, both body and soul, physical and spiritual, to think in terms of the kingdom of God is to think in terms of ministries of the word and and ministries of deed. It's it's to think in terms of, of... preaching and evangelism and discipleship and scripture memory. And it's to think in terms of mercy ministries and helps and things like that. When I was in um, seminary in the early 1970s, I had a, I guess we were seniors, so it would have been about 75 or spring of 76. And a guy said to me, I'll never forget this, it was just like, Uh, one of those marking moments in your life. He said, Alan, when you get out, what kind of church do you want to have? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, do you want to have a church that's uh, uh, a pulpit preaching-based church or a church that's discipleship-based or a church that's personal evangelism uh, focused, or a church that's mission focused, or a church that's mercy ministry focused, or a church that has a lot of good small groups, or a church that's based on good doctrine, 
and he may have listed some other stuff. And I, and I said, kind of naively, I guess, and kind of sheepishly, because uh, I didn't know where he was going with this or whatever, didn't understand. I said, well, I, I think the Bible teaches all of those things, doesn't it? And he said, well, you, you just can't do all of those things. You must focus. And I was perplexed then. I was perplexed for about 20 years. And then in the early 1990s, I was reading and teaching through uh, Tim Keller's book, The Ministries of Mercy. And he challenged me and us to think in terms of the kingdom of God. Because if you think in terms of the kingdom of God, then you will emphasize all of these things. The, the kingdom of God is an umbrella term that will say, are we going to do scripture memory? Yes. Are we going to do mercy ministries? Yes. Are we going to have good doctrine? Yes. Are we going to preach the truth with clarity and authority? Yes. Are we going to have small groups? Yes. Are we? Yeah. If you think in terms of the kingdom. But if you think just in terms of discipleship or just in terms of evangelism or just one of these partial things, you can leave out a lot of big and good things. Secondly, not only does that, secondly in this third point, not only does the, the, the thinking in terms of the kingdom of God uh, push us toward words and deeds, and, and by the way, if you look at this text, uh, it, it's a ministry indeed. A girl is restored, a dead girl comes back to life, a woman who has some kind of discharge of blood, some kind of gynecological issue, she's healed. Uh, two blind men are healed. Jesus heals, heals a mute man. And, and then he's healing every disease in verse 35. And then he says, you need more preachers to go out and proclaim the kingdom. Word and deed. Look at his ministry. Write down when you get to a certain place in your Bible, if, you know, this is a ministry in word. This is a ministry in deed. You'll find out that's what Jesus was doing. That words lead to deeds and deeds lead to words if words and deeds are done properly. Secondly, it impels us to think both individually and corporately. Kingdoms are not individual entities. And since the kingdom of God is destined to be populated by a number that no one can count, to think in terms of the kingdom impels us to think both individually and corporately. You see, the gospel is not just about Jesus and me. Speaking broadly about evangelicalism, not about CVP, but speaking broadly about evangelicalism, one of the, it seems to me one of the main problems is to limit, and the, what's the gospel about? It's about Jesus and me. And it is about Jesus and me, but it's also about Jesus and us. We need to think individually, we need to think corporately. Thirdly, it seems to me it, it impels us to think in terms of the gospel of the kingdom, it impels us to think both locally and globally. Since there will be a number that no one can count in God's kingdom, since there will be some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, to think in terms of the kingdom impels us to think of others and to be missional. Look at verse 36 here in the text. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. So God has this expansive vision that there'll be some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you have an expansive vision as an individual, as a local church? Church? 
So how should this impact us, the gospel of the kingdom? I'm going to just quickly give you three things. First of all, you should be gripped by this. It should grip you in your heart that you are a child of the king and you live in his kingdom. And secondly, you should grow in it. You should work this through. You should understand it and develop it. And thirdly, you should seek to give it away. Give the gospel away. Send out labors into his harvest. Can you keep quiet about really good news? Look at verse 30 in this text. Uh, After Jesus had healed the two blind men, their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. (laughs) And what did they do? They went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. (laughs) Well, guys, I mean, the king just told you to shut your mouths about what he did for you. Yeah, but I can't keep it in. I can't keep it in. I can't keep it in. Friends, beware of taking a part of our salvation for the whole of our salvation. Embrace the whole gospel, the king and his kingdom. The good news is just this. The king has come and is coming. The kingdom is real and will be finalized when he comes again. The soldiers freed from prison. What was the goal? Not just freed, but fed and cleansed and clothed and fattened up and sent home. Likewise, we are not just freed from our sins by His blood. We are, but not just that. We're made citizens of His kingdom. We're given a new name. We're written into His will. We're made heirs to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away. And we're made friends of the best imaginable king who loves his people dearly. That is really good news. Why would you choose anything else when that is offered to you so freely? Let us pray. Lord our God, uh, we do thank you in Jesus' name that we are in a kingdom now. A kingdom that has come, is coming, and will come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king and that our citizenship is in heaven. And I pray that we can be uh, uh, colonizing heaven wherever we are and whatever we're doing. That we'll be the aroma of Christ to the saved, and to those who are perishing. Lord, help us to think in terms of the kingdom and be impelled to think locally and globally and individually and corporately and in words and in deeds. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.